0: This episode of All The President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au, one of Sydney's best catering companies and now home food delivery companies in the COVID-19 crisis. The restrictions all around the nation in Australia and for our international listeners, that's very positive. They're happening all around Sydney too. They are allowing you to have more people over. They're allowing you to have your family back around. They're allowing you finally to socialize in this pandemic. You're seeing examples of it all over the world. And You know, one of those things means if you've been at home, locked away for like two months, you've forgotten how to cook for people. You've forgotten how to cook for a large scale of people, but Bella Catering haven't. So get onto their website, check out all their stuff, take the stress about catering for all of your friends and family and focus on the embraces if you're allowed. Focus on the social distancing, being in the same spaces with the people that you love. Don't focus on food. Bella Catering, have got that covered. bellacatering.com.au and now onto the show. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Rugba had traced the $89,000 in Barker's bank account to four cashiers checks issued at the Banco Internacional Manuel Ogarrio de Garde, a prominent Mexico City lawyer. Bernstein called Sussman from Miami Airport. Should he go to Mexico City and let Woodward, who was back from vacation, deal with Dardis by phone? Sussman thought Bernstein should stay in Miami for at least a day. Half an hour later, Bernstein checked in at the Sheridan Four Ambassadors, Miami's most expensive hotel. He asked the desk clerk for Walter Rugeber's room number. Mr. Rugeber checked out over the weekend, the clerk said. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is one of my favorite people. There's a couple of people that I get to speak to where cinema and wrangling their wonderful minds around filmmakers, technique craft philosophy isn't their day-to-day job it is actually a vocation and uh, I, I genuinely uh, am just flabbergasted by the person who i'm talking to's talent they're the author of off the map freedom control and the future in michael mann's public enemies a beautiful little monograph uh and really now dipping uh his toe into some video editing um, and essays, and one particularly that I just love to bits that I've watched three times, *The Irishman*. Um, so, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome my friend, Niall Schwartz, to all the president's minutes. Welcome, my friend.
1: Hi, Blake. Hello, world. It's great to be
0: here. <laughs> what, 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 what people don't know about you is that your day job is in the me- is in the medical profession, and so of late you've been, shall we say, essential and. Busy?
1: <laughs> I have uh, kind of an employment survivor's guilt. We've talked about this before. Yes. Where, yeah. I have I have too much work right now. Yes. I'm, I'm one of the guys at the health department who goes in and and takes in the incoming positive labs and stuff. And I'm in contact with the epidemiologists in the state of Minnesota, Howard. And, you know trying to figure out how we're going to wrangle with this problem and uh, I think uh, so far in the wide scheme of things we're doing pretty good however I've had very little time you know like me time to just chill out and watch movies or write or anything you know I'm working overtime and I come home and what do I want to do I just want to veg out and watch family feud or something.
0: <laughs> watch something that requires none of your intellectual capacity to process it.
1: Professional wrestling or something
0: like <laughs> that. Oh God. I we
1: you know that, nevertheless I found time to squeeze in this movie which is quite enjoyable. I did watch Capone the other night, which I, I haven't I, liked.
0: See, I haven't seen that yet. I'm really excited because you know you know when when there is a tsunami of negativity? and, like, disgust at a movie. I don't know about yeah. you, Niles, but I get, like, a fire in my belly, like, oh, that sounds like, that sounds like I need to see that. People are angry. I really need to see that.
1: Well, it's a weird movie. It's an imperfect film. that Sometimes, you know, you're talking, as with your upcoming Miami Vice podcast, I mean, that, that movie is an earworm. And Capone has some qualities that are curious, and whether you like it or dislike it, I mean, I think it's, it's proficiently made, and uh, it, its approach is really curious in terms of what biopics are, which are now days so stale and yes, fusty. And I kind of like the approach that Josh Trank took, and it's, this should have probably been his second movie after Chronicle. Yeah,
0: he's he's gone down. Yeah. A, he's he's gone. Down, he's gone down a path. He's gone down a path. Josh uh, Trank famously some great features about his his entry into the Matrix of Hollywood, shall we say, and then unceremoniously being spat out, sort of hairless neo style, uh, sort of hairless into the sewer, and finally now this is him actually, you know, reclaiming some of that promise, uh, at least on a level of ambition. Because I'm—I don't know about you—I'm always, regardless of a movie is a colossal failure. So especially folks who are really hard on Zack Snyder movies, like as a as a sort of popular filmmaker, they're like, oh, I don't like this, etc. I I kind of like filmmakers who are at least ambitious and live and die by the sword of their ambition. And even if it doesn't come off or it doesn't hit or it doesn't resonate, the ambition is there, and you can at least admire what they were trying to do, even if it doesn't yeah. hit.
1: I, I like taking an oblique approach to things that are so familiar. And the thing about Al Capone is that I, I myself didn't really, I thought he died after like five years after say like when the untouchables takes place after he was convicted for tax. Yes, <laughs> I, I knew nothing. I, I just, I knew that he had syphilis and I thought he died of that. I didn't know that he died as late as 1947 and yeah. that he, you know, and what, Trank does is he basically makes this? It's closer to The Shining or something <laughs> like, you know, Lost Highway than than uh, you're you know the Untouchables. It's it's a, a journey into self, so to speak, uh, which you know maybe I, and you know as I was saying, I work at the health department and I deal with syphilis a lot. I, I, I'm, an, I'm an STD investigator, in fact this might come up when we talk about the, all the president's men, but um, you know, and so I, I deal with people who de- deal with neurosyphilis, tertiary syphilis, like the, the Al Capone character, and it's not pretty, no. and well, what that does to your mind and your body. Which brings us, of course, to uh, Alan J. No.
0: <laughs> the, master, the master of the misdirecting segue um, is my friend who's with me today. No, but we're talking about something completely differently. We are talking about uh, something completely different. We're talking about an investigation. We're talking about a 1976 really rigorously journalistic, uh, you know, a lionization of two of America's most seminal journalists at the time and of an event um, that really is one of the signposts in modern American history and something that was so deeply well-known and omnipresent that there are only a couple of other events in recent history that are anything like it, uh, as in the occupation of the news cycle. One of them is the event we're experiencing right now, which is COVID-19, and another event is um, 9-11. so hot off the heels uh just like a couple of films tried to do with world trade center and united 93 in 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 9 11 um um, and even maybe the global financial crisis for something like margin call and a little a a, a little bit later um some other movies that came out there but this is taking an approach to something which is so well known and, and letting us have like a mysterious detective investigative sort of mode uh, in, in this thing that it's kind of, uh, it's a really, really special flick. And I've got you for a moment, just as one new arm of this investigation, really the ethos of follow the money, it sort of begins with these conversations now of like, if you follow the money, this is, you know, these, the, the money is the symptoms to, to use your language. The money is the symptoms of all of these bad deeds that are going on. So what's your experience with this movie before, Niles? I know you said you ha- you've recently rewatched it. Have you had an experience with All the President's Men? Is it something you revisit occasionally? Uh, how are you with Pakula? I'm really interested to hear because this is something we haven't yet talked about. We've talked about many other filmmakers, but not so much Mr. Pakula.
1: Yeah, well, I was so uh, struck by the fact that you decided to choose this, this movie as your next project after Pete. It was, wasn't it Bilga Berry who suggested it to you?
0: No, it wasn't, it uh, it, it wasn't a suggestion. It was, it was, it wasn't a suggestion from Bilga. It was just that when I, I confided in Bilga that this would be the next project that I would do because a lot of people were asking, "Oh, it's what's the next project? Is it going to be my, you know, is it going to be Miami Vice, which we're now doing as sort of our drink along show? Is it going to be, uh, you know, The Insider? Is it going to be Thief? Is it going to be Manhunter?" Um, and you know, I, I did that little dalliance with the last twelve minutes, of the Mohicans, just as an exercise and really just a bit of a a celebration of the one heat minute crew and the great folk who I become so close with along that project. But when Bilger said, well, so what are you actually going to do when you dive back into a movie uh, a minute at a time? I said, the only movie that I feel like is scratching an itch in the same way that he was doing to me is All the President's Men. And I said, it's just because it's so, it, it consumes me. It hypnotizes me. I'll put it on for, I think I put it on in the background and then whatever I'm doing takes second fiddle to what to the movie, you know, I think oh, I'll just clean or I'll, I'm just, you know, pottering around the house or I'm just, you know, going to take some notes or writing about something and it would just consume me. And so when I told Bilger that that would, I would do it, he said, I love that movie. I love Pacula. I want to help you lead off this thing. As I think he says, even in the show, I'd love to help you lead it off because, um, you know, if, if if it crashes and burns, I was there in the beginning and it's not my fault, you know, sort of thing. So, uh, um, he was kind enough to offer up his services in the first episode of the show. So I, 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 I took him up on it.
1: Well, I mean, whereas heat is a movie that I, that I've watched probably a million times. Yes. Uh, all the President's Men was something that I had only seen in my youth, like in my teen years, once on video cassette, and then another time at a retro uh, theatrical screening. And it, it was a second viewing when I was a little older that it clicked for me, and I I found that myself really impressed with it. And again, just watching it really for the third time a few weeks ago when you, you asked me to be on, and. When I had it on the last time on, you know, off of, uh, on demand, I had it on repeat I, and I had it on the, in the background and it is an addictive film to watch and I'm fascinated by Watergate. And I always, uh, uh, Nixon is, I think, a magnificent character, even though he's, he's a, you know, a background antagonist in this movie. And, uh, the thing about, all the president's men, or a thing about it, is that it's it's like acts, it's almost like, whereas Michael Mann himself has described Dr. Strangelove as uh, all a third act. Yes. All the president feels like it's all a first act. Yes. And so the first time I saw it, I was like, that's it? <laughs> you know, because suddenly, and I, I really wanted to see, well, what happens next, and what happens next is, for the you know the history books, and I guess that the screenplay actually doesn't adapt the whole Woodward Bernstein book, but just part of it. And then, but revisiting it, you just uh, I, I really appreciate its austerity and how it's bookended by history in a way. I mean, the way it begins—what was it, June first, nineteen seventy-two? Yes, with Nick's speech. And that speech just sort of lays out the that moment in time in terms of what the world what what is happening globally between East and West, communism and uh, America. You know, Vietnam is obviously on everyone's mind. Nixon had just gotten back from overseas, I think from China and Russia. Yeah, Yeah. sure. But but that whole that kind of global conflict is sort of seething throughout the rest of the movie, you know, you hear it over the radio. You you uh, kind of get the, these little nods to the Cold War in terms of uh, how people, I uh, you know, establish their identities based on a political ideology like that one uh, Cuban who's been arrested and says, I'm, "My my name's so and so, anti-communist." That's my.
0: <laughs> and even the judge <laughs> says. It's a strange occupation. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange occupation, an anti-communist.
1: Yeah, so the, there's all the, these these global strains, you know, the the socio-political, and then you, you settle in in the minutia of these two reporters who who much you know, kind of like Miami Vice, actually, don't seem to have much of a personal life. Their their life is the job. There, yes. there's no romantic subplot to really, you know.
0: Pour, you know no, they, they they literally excised those things. You know, the original drafts of the script or alternate drafts of the script had things like personal lives and you know, you know, a frustrated girlfriend or a whatever. And they're like, no, absolutely not. We are not. We're not taking the focus away from these two guys doing their work. There is no way we're doing okay. it.
1: I think you know it. That would just be this burden on everything, and uh, just sticking with the facts and following the money. And it, you know, ev- everything is fraught with background in the movie, yes. and so you don't need to focus on those things. You know, there's a lot that we're not. I mean, it's established that there are things that we're not seeing, things that are being omitted, and, and that applies to documentation and to. The personal lives of all these characters, whether the two main characters or the supporting characters, it actually reminds you know a, a movie that I've seen and I really admire, but I we can't really talk about uh, Roman Polanski's <laughs> *Jacques* is a lot like it's a lot like all the President's Men. It's all about paperwork, really, and all about. Uh, in you know, using the paperwork to find out what's actually going on. In that case the Dreyfus affair. We'll talk about that in ten years. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but but
0: I'm 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 not, all, like, all not lucky men, not lucky um, not lucky enough I would say not fortunate enough to see for whatever you feel about Polanski's personal life. Um, yeah. I, I I am Disappointed that I haven't had a chance to see that yet, and I would like to because I think he's a very fascinating filmmaker outside of his personal life.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I think uh, basically it's the English-speaking world that won't see it. But that, yeah. It, it, speaking of fraught with background, uh, <laughs> never. <laughs> but, but my point that I, what I see in that movie is like, wow, well, he's he's basically just he could have taken a very conventional, uh, hackneyed way of approaching this material and made it a lot more sentimental. No, he's taking the All the President's Men route. He's he's really just making a procedural, uh, whereas All the President's Men was very much a movie in the mo- moment. The, the audiences watching it, I think, were very attuned to what was going on uh, versus something set in 1896,
0: 97. Yeah, it, and- it's, it, but it's that, the strange and lovely mix of it is is that it's that it's presumption of the audience's aptitude. Like I think I think that's a thing that you and I both really admire about Michael Mann as a filmmaker is that he never thinks the audience is stupid. Um, he, yeah. in, in fact, he'll he'll strip away, uh, he'll strip away contextual details or like hammering home of information because he feels like if he's uh, implicit in the imparting of what's happening in action in, in just having an actor convey emotion and feeling that he doesn't have to be as rigorous with detail. And I think that that's something that we both resonate, that both resonates for us. And I think that here, that is a very functional decision about the time w- that this movie is released. Like it's like, it is loaded with information and it is loaded with names and it's loaded with expository dialogue around, you know, they're chasing the, the details, but there is just by virtue of, the entanglement of american politics it's like there are so many details that they can't they don't even have a second you can't even mention it. if you mention that person you go down a rabbit hole if you mention this person you get in a rabbit hole if you have the inference of oh what does nixon think about this other than just the lights are on at the white house and uh, someone collecting the papers first thing in the morning and getting them to him i think you you get distracted and so what i love here is that they're like they made functional decisions about the knowledge of all of the audience who was going to be seeing this day and date in 1976 when the movie was released, that later feel like virtuosic master strokes of storytelling. Because whenever you're telling something about a historic, a, a significant historical event, the trap is to do the greatest hits and is to show everything you know, to show those big seminal moments of history that are omnipresent, whereas the 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 sort of the, probably the greatest biopics or the greatest historical, you know, historical or, you know, docudramas, whatever you want to call them, really choose where they're going to do it. And I think, you know, we talk about Michael Mann a lot. Um, in any one heat minute production, you're going to hear about Michael Mann, but that's one of the things that I think is a masterstroke about Ali. You do know, at the beginning of his career where it's all hope and then there's a yawning gap in the middle... Really essentially, where his life is he, he's is in turmoil his his entire existence is all over the map, and then the finale of the movie comes back to that restoration, the crown being restored to the king, so to speak um I think that's a that's a a really dynamic and phenomenal choice to make when you're making a biopic about about biopic or a historical picture because you've got so much that you can just get caught in the reeds, And it's like, no, I've got to take a, I've got to take a really calculated snapshot of this person's significant moments and find a way to tie them together. Because if you just, you know, otherwise it feels like too much of an archetype, too much of the rote stuff that you now get bored with in most standard biopics or, or historical pictures.
1: And the immediacy is there. That's the thing. Yes. It's, it's, you're there and that's in Ali and that's in all of Michael Mann's procedurals. And, in all the president's men it's you know okay you're just focusing on Robert Redford doodling in his notebook and i could attest you know in my life as a as a disease investigator you know my day job i'm on the phone with clinics all the time trying to get treatment information and patient information and i'm on hold a lot and getting transferred <laughs> a lot My notebooks are filled with doodles, like, you know, on the job. And it's just, you're just kind of drawing faces and weird faces. <laughs> and, I, I, and you're just squiggling little weird designs and random, random words, you know, just, you're just kind of digging up all the this stuff and the, this, uh, you know, onslaught of, Incoming information and uh, you know, 1975 ni- or 1973 74, you know, that's a much more analog time than we, we have now. And it which makes what Woodward and Bernstein put together and what the uh, coolest movie do- represents, you know, just all the more, I think, astonishing to you know, watching it right now.
0: Well, let's watch it right now. Let's watch this scene. It's in a shiny Washington park. One of the things that I love about this early scene and you see it in echoes and it's just like a little bit of foreshadowing and I don't like to talk too much ahead of school. You know, we end up talking about it and breaking the rules, but I just love the, there is something right now in this moment, 43rd minute of all the president's men that, Washington does not feel threatening. Like the landscape of Washington doesn't yet feel like it's completely threatening. Even even in the Deep Throat garage that we've just been in, that feels like an extremity. You know, Deep Throat's putting Woodward through his paces to adhere to some sort of like espionage tradecraft, like change cabs, go here, make sure you weren't followed, come to this underground car park where we won't be observed, etc., and right now it still doesn't feel quite threatening. But again, what is a masterstroke later? So we're going to sort of see in this scene and we're going to roll into the next. But just on the opening frame of the 43rd minute, it's there's a great anonymity and a very casual nature about lunchtime in Washington in the summer the sun is shining. People are out sitting in the park. There's people pedaling their bikes, people, you know, having lunch and a coffee out of a really awesome thermos that I want to get my hands on if I can. Someone point me in a direction to Etsy or somewhere where I can get that thermos. It's so cool. But it's it doesn't feel threatening. But what is a masterstroke is that it does. Like there is some immediate just changes, holds of shots, decisions on, you know, a person turning in the crowd later on in the film that we're going to see that is just chilling so Niles and I are going to watch this minute right now and then we're going to come back and talk about it
1: who's opinion Miami DA what's his name I don't know his name but the guy who's heading the investigation is named Dardis Dardis what's his first name I don't know his first name I guess you'll have to find that out Hi. Hello. I'm Carl Bernstein. I got a 915 appointment for Mr. card. Uh, ah, yes, Mr. Bernstein. I'm afraid that Mr. Dardis won't be able to see you this morning. His calendar is really quite full. Well, it must be a mistake, because I, I made the appointment with him personally. I yes, called from well, Washington the appointment yesterday. should have been made through me. If you'd care to wait, I'll see if I can squeeze you in later. Oh, thanks very much. I guess it's uh, difficult when he makes his own appointment. Yes, well, we try to handle it. Four o'clock. We'll be back in fifteen minutes. Want anything? Coffee.
0: Coffee black. Coffee black. <laughs> the actress Polly Holiday plays the secretary. Is just so delectable. There, I love time passing too in this film. It's sort of Im- it's sort of imperceptible, but you know that it's happening. And this is a great note because it's like underscored slightly here. But it goes from nine fifteen, which you assume is like nine o'clock in the morning, that he's rolling into that elevator going up to you know, the secretary, and, and then it's like, hey, it's four o'clock, we're going to get a coffee. It's like, so he's been sitting there in that same spot all day. It's a it's a great little, great little sequence.
1: Well, you're talking about time passing, but also space passing. It, it, it's a beautiful transition where you're in that, you know, quotidian picnic, you know, Washington DC lunch area, you know, it's, you know, in the sun and everything. And then, well, I guess you're gonna have to find out and <laughs> and cut to that elevator, you know, it's a beautiful cut transition, just bam, and Hoffman enters and then the camera pans with Hoffman and Gordon Willis keeps it at this beautiful distance and you see the, if you're looking and observing, you see City of Miami, suddenly he's in Miami. Uh, you know where what's what's just happened here, and you know it. It, it feels uh, you know so unusual to move through space like because you're moving with Dustin Hoffman. So time and space suddenly are as if to reflect the pressure that this reporter is on on this deadline. As he, you know, you'll see in the next minute, uh, I think, with uh, Ned Beatty, it's like I have a deadline, Mother totally <laughs> <wanker." And, laughs> you know, and these people are black, you know, giving them the hat basically. And I, I love that just how it, it's the simplicity with which Pecula and Gordon Willis, I, I think, have these setups and lay it out for us. That's, that, that's what's so great. And which I think makes the journey that we're taking with Woodward and Bernstein so much, all the more fascinating. Yeah. And as we, the, the information, you know, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's also a choice like from a real
0: functional perspective. There's an Aussie filmmaker, comedian, radio personality, podcaster by the name of Tony Martin. And I remember listening to one of his great shows a long time ago. It's called Get This. And it was a really great podcast and one of the sort of first Australian comedy podcasts. And he was talking about when he made his film Bad Eggs. He's like, how does an independent filmmaker make a movie cheaper And you have it with no establishing shots. He's like, just have no establishing shots. And what happens is you go from set to set, from beat to beat, and you find ways to use the characters to transport you to the next scene without these huge establishing shots. Because when you do that, it takes time, it takes money, and you're chewing up running time of the movie. And if you're making people follow you to these different places and chevrons and where are we... Um, if you sort of take that away from the whole practice of the movie, people can still follow what's going on. Like they know what's happening. You don't need it. It's more of a very classical way of like, we are moving to a new place now. So here's an establishing shot. But if you're just in a city, in a single city usually, and his crime movie was, you don't have to have establishing shots because you kind of make a very defined playground, if you like, of where things are happening. So you don't have to continue to do establishing shots.
1: And well, it also keeps you on your feet as a as a viewer, and I think it it, it could you it could engage you more. Yes. Versus if you have the it's a little bit more lulling and you might it might lose you, which is interesting. You might be more comfortable, but you might be lazier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You it, might lose it, the movie. It is absolutely the the easier watch if you just want to be completely passive in your engagement with a movie to just be told exactly where everything is. Um, And which is why like, which is why, and I can't remember which Avengers movie, but the Russo brothers made the choice to like have the most gigantic, or it might've been Captain America civil war. They had the most gigantic chevrons to announce the new places that we're going to, that it was like, who is this for and how stupid do you think the audience is? Like is the question that you have to ask. So what I love though, exactly as you said, is we are so entangled with these protagonists, both of them that you, you do, not even though for so much of this movie, we're entangled with Washington and it makes complete sense to just don't do an establishing shot. We're in Washington. Every, the whole city is living and breathing that they can literally transport you with Carl To Miami, a completely different state, time zone, times, maybe a week of discussions with editors and stuff, just all gone from just sitting comfortably in the sunshine in the park in Washington, D.C. I just love the choice that it's just so effortlessly, we're just gonna be here. And like you said, the observing the city of Miami piece is right there. And I just can't tell you how many times, I'm probably gonna say it every time that I watch this minute with the actress, Polly Holiday. I love the flex that he says, Hi, my name is Carl Bernstein from the Washington Post. I have a nine fifteen with Ms. Stardust. And she says, Well, Mr. Bernstein, and she calls him <laughs> Mr. Bernstein. It is the most subtle flex of like passive aggression. And I just love it to pieces every time I watch it as well. So you know, not only is this guy traveled through time and space to get here and probably had important editorial discussions about the importance and criticality of being here so instantaneously, but now this woman's just going to mispronounce his name the whole time. It's a it's a beautiful thing.
1: Right, and uh, uh, capping off the minute, I I love how the you basically have the Charlie Brown teacher treatment given to the security. Officers passing yes. by asking if she wants any coffee. It just sort of adds to the sort of dull anonymity of everything in this this Dade County establishment. And <laughs> to, to tie, I don't mean to tie things up to your previous project that much, but to me, this was what Michael Mann would do in his in his Life as a filmmaker, in terms of how he transitions from between spaces, because I, The Insider is the obvious descendant of All the President's Men. Absolutely. In terms of being uh, arguably the other great journalism movie. And whereas All the President's Men is about an event that everyone knows about, everyone across the entire world, not just Americans, obviously, Uh, The Insider is about something that uh, Brown, a tobacco company, and a little weird. Network, corrupt or conspiracy or fuck up that you know. Not that I didn't know about it when I first saw the movie. So it's about, but it's just immediately where, where you learn about it. If
0: you're a passive, you know, if you're our age, you learn about it because cigarette packets just started to have warnings on them. <laughs> like that's that's the consequence of like, oh no, these things are addictive. You can't just sell them like candy anymore. <laughs> like they they're they're bad for you.
1: But but Lowell Bergman Al Pacino's character in that movie is basically a lot like Woodward and Bernstein. But in the future, and the future moves a little faster, you have these you have more machinery, obviously. you have the the internet becoming a thing, mm. and uh, the fax machines and all, I, I love the fax scenes in the insider. but uh, it, you know it it's just the the way man transitions from Kentucky from Louisville to New York. To uh, Colorado, yes. In the inside, very similar. To, from you know, obviously beginning in uh, Beirut. Yes. It, I love how the Insider is a movie where the setting is everywhere, and that kind of anticipates where Man goes with Miami Advice and Black Hat in terms of a global world, which uh, interestingly enough is what he talked about COVID in uh, Bill Gabeary's Vulture article published yesterday, I believe. Uh, but back to all the president's men, I think that sort of, that sets the template for what, you know, that mode of transitioning and, um, and back to the performances, the, the gal who plays the, the secretary. Holly Holliday. Cool.
0: She's just wonderful. She's like the nurse ratchet of secretaries. I think I've said that before, but she, she's just the nurse ratchet of secretaries. I love her. I love it a piece. And, she's outstanding.
1: And Hoffman just hat, does his best to be the, the you know, polite. Even while he knows is he's kind of, people are, you know, calling him Bernstein. And, so. <laughs> That's when seeing with Ned Beatty is and, even better.
0: And, and what I would say is, I just want to touch on what you said there about the politeness. Because it's not just the name. He also goes, and this is something we haven't really seen from Bernstein, uh, I almost said Bernstein, from Bernstein up until this point, is he's really trying to empathize with her. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, it must be frustrating how he books his own appointments. A- and he's trying to empathize. Oh, yeah, he's quite frustrating. And she goes, and rather than like sort of complaining about it, she goes, oh, it's you know, that's what we do. And she's like, she completely, after already telling him seemingly that, She's frustrated that he's made this appointment outside of her system and he's trying to empathize with her to try and get an in. He's like, Oh, how do I get an in with this conversation? How do I make this person like me more? She completely screws it up because she's like, No, that's just the system. It's how it works. You just sit down and you adhere to it and whatnot. And so immediately you know that she's not buying anything from him. There's nothing about this interaction that she wants. She has this happen frequently. People will wait, and if they wait, she'll try and squeeze them in, and if they don't, they're out, and it doesn't really matter to her either way. It's, um, it's, it's the DMV. The DMV, that's exactly what, <laughs> that's what it is.
1: You just see, uh, I, I mean, this is another movie that it makes me want to smoke. I'm not a smoker, but. Watching Hoffman in this movie makes me want to smoke. I
0: want to smoke all and, the time in this movie, you Niles. Know? I, there are so many times, maybe it's because, I think you might have put the finger on it. I, I, I used to smoke many years ago, and I haven't in years and years and years. And occasionally, a few drinks with friends, I'll be out and someone will have a cigarette, and I'll just go, can I just have a little puff? And, and, and I've been, maybe it's an ISO thing, maybe it's this movie, but every single day, I'm just like, you know what, I could... I could have a cigarette right now. I could totally. I've just this. Hoffman has infected me. Maybe isolation has infected me. It does. It. It's a. It's a smoker's. It's. It's a smoker's avatorial where the insider will make you not want to smoke anymore. Uh, <laughs> this movie is absolutely uh, uh, making you want to smoke the whole time it's on. Well,
1: yeah, Hoffman's getting screwed in that scene, but the. I mean, at least he gets to smoke cigarettes, and we see. <laughs> that's how we know that time has passed. is, that's a pile of my nice <laughs> ashtray. <asterisks.
0: laughs> yes,
1: that's all. You, you know, you can't do that anymore. No. Uh, I, I of course also identify with him drinking fourteen. Him who drinks fourteen cups of coffee later in the movie.
0: (laughs) Yes, when he's talking to the bookkeeper. Yeah, so it's if you're in the, you know, if you want to get to the minutia, and I think this is what happens when I talk to Niles. It's at forty-two minutes fifty-four seconds on the dial. If you freeze frame it, there is a wonderful shot of like an ashtray that is just swimming with butts like he's (laughs) just been there he's been there all day and it looks like at least half a pack and they're all his and he's sort of putting out another one so there if there is one bit of respite and the great thing is also the way that his posture is his arm is sort of out and his watch is out of his jacket so you know that like he's constantly been it just gives that inference of like this is a guy who's checked his watch 150 times in this last however many hours. It must be hours and hours and hours that he sat here. Um, yeah, it's just uh, uh, one of those great things.
1: He didn't even bring a book. What the hell? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, his notebook, I think, you know, he's furiously then going to take a million notes about this guy and then run across to a uh, run across to uh, a phone booth. Question, you know, I, I think absolutely you're 100% correct. And I know that it's hard to continue to go back to it. But, you know, when I was thinking about You know, The Insider, I think, is a complete masterpiece. Almost in my mind, up there with Heat as one of my favorite films ever made. Um, And and I think that when I was thinking about this project, it's impossible for people to go, "Oh, why didn't you just do The Insider or something like that?" Or just at least to to have that thought. And and I and I kind of and I think I think my love for The Insider is. You know, there, there are multiple movies that I feel have such a deep kinship with The Insider that, you know, I could have almost done any one of them. You know, I could have done All the President's Men. I could have done Network. Um, you know, uh, I could, you know, arguably um, another par- uh, Pacula movie is like The Parallax View. you. could have done The Conversation. There are these films that have um, this absolutely and utterly rich, uh, you know, both formal and philosophical approach to conspiratorial thinking, to you know, corporate and government omnipresence, and therefore malfeasance and power and corruption. And um, I, I love uh, the the reason I love this movie maybe is along those lines of why I love Michael Mann movies and why I love Heat in particular is is the workmanship of this. You know, those some of those other films I've mentioned are more. Uh, more abstract and they they can be more virtuosic and have more sort of artistic flurries. And I think the thing that I admire, and maybe it's the same reason that someone like Andrew Sarris looks back at, you know, that classical Hollywood and, you know, dives in and, and loves those films that are made during the Hays Code that still somehow managed to be extremely poetic. Um, and it's even in things like modern Iranian cinema, it's the restraint that the, that the that the narrative is begging of this movie, and the 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 parameters, the box that it says you cannot go past the boundaries of this box, because then you're going to you're going to make this insignificant. It's not going to be a docudrama. It's going to be just fallacy. It's going to be propaganda. So the box that they have to stay in with this movie makes me admire all the more how the artistry functions within those parameters. And I think that that's why when i look at all of those movies like i literally that list that i just said of you know parallax of of the conversation of network um and, and of this film any one of them in my mind could probably stand up to a minute by minute scrutiny because of the artistry because of the performances because of the way that they continue to resonate and have influenced other filmmakers um and, and films but it's um it i think there's something about this film that made that that just I, I guess that put it over the edge for me as a, as a, as a person who's like critical modus operandi is this because I just, I'm, I marvel at it's immediacy and it's at the confines that it works in and how it manages to, to juggle all of that.
1: Well, as, as a film about communication, I mean, I, I love the way that all the president's men begins with that typewriter, those, those letters being yes. drilled and it, it's, it's, you know, not just a typewriter putting ink on paper. It's it's powerful. It's explode. It's explosive, and that that I think it, that works in a gestalt within within the viewer who's thinking about what they're watching. Okay, it's this is all about publishing something. Publishing communi- It's all about communication, and what are the ramifications of communication, and how does that involve us? and you know watergate it for a long when i was a kid i really couldn't ex- i didn't get watergate i just knew that nixon was a corrupt sob <laughs> and i saw oliver stone's nixon which is a movie i happen to love a I like, lot i like it know? too
0: like it too that's that's what's fun is this movie becomes an intersecting point of so many great films that you get to discuss in in, yeah. in 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 comparison it's like I you never want to see any of Nixon in this movie but it's lovely to be like all right cool now I'm going to dive into Oliver Stone's Nixon and watch that madness unfold and then imagine that happening concurrently in this weird protracted cinematic universe of uh, of all the president's men
1: you're in the Freudian nightmare <laughs> of the beautiful <laughs> You know the beast institutionally and biologically, and you know with that character. Uh, but you know that, and I saw that a long time before I saw all the president's men, actually. Yeah. Uh, but and so that that kind of that explained Watergate to me. Uh, but before that, I was like, huh? and but what interests me in you doing this project is you as a, an Australian and. I'm fascinated by, because this movie is about American history, obviously, mm-hmm. and whereas Heat is such an archetypal cr- cops and robbers movie that it just, mm-hmm. of course, that's universal. But I, I'm curious like, why you came to do All the President's Men, uh, and you actually began this during the year when us here in the United States were embroiled in... in The Mueller investigation and Donald Trump, who is kind of like Nixon squared in a (laughs) a lot of ways, Uh, even without the conscientiousness or cerebral qualities.
0: Australia's colonial history, I think, has a big part of why I'm interested in this. And it's because of how that... still continues to linger in the outlook of the country. And so one of my great guests earlier on in the show, Dan Illich, who's a satirist in this country, um, a very funny comedian and podcast host, came on the show and talked about like Australia's institutional mode is like basically rooted in the fact that English soldiers, colonizers brought over prisoners who to to basically, as slave labor, to build this new colony and help invade and then, you know, basically get rid of uh, the indigenous population of the country, essentially. And so our whole government, anything that's structure, anything that's authority in our country has always been like they're cops, Right. There's like, it's like a cop, it's a cop slash prison guard to prisoner relationship that functions in our country. So although people are like, hey, Aussies are like easygoing and we're really fun. There is a, there is a lot, the libel laws in Australia are like Rupert Murdoch custom designed. So you can't say anything. No one would be able to report anything. Like these guys would have been able to report it about anyone in this in in this country, even now 2020, no one. Um, there was recently an Australian federal police raid on our national socially funded broadcaster, the Australian uh, Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, to kind of hunt down sources. So our government, who's in power, a liberal. Government, conservative in Australia. Conservative government dispatched the Australian Federal Police into the Australian Broadcasting Corporation to drum up sources that had been spilling the beans on political fuckery and the like. Um, and then now even a, a great Australian journalist in one of the most recent episodes, as we record this, posted on episode 38, Peter Ryan, who's a senior business correspondent at the ABC and was a Washington bureau chief still talks about how they are having to fold back you know digital avenues because people can be traced through government organizations and government you know espionage organizations uh, like ASIO in Australia Um, they can trace them if there are whistleblowers within corporate entities or in government that are telling about political fuckery like as a huge example Australia's politics uh uh, especially our conservative in power governments politics around refugees and a lot of the you know uh what what I would just call like inhumanity of our practices with people that are in offshore detention etc like there are whistleblowers that if you whistleblow from one of those sites you will be arrested for life like you'll be arrested and jailed for life for giving that up and like that's written into their contract so I guess what I am always continue to be fascinated about and drawn to is really brave, um, really forthright um, and really uh, 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 accountability targeting journalism. And I think in my country specifically as the country who birthed Rupert Murdoch, SOZ everyone um, like uh, like that that is something that I am drawn to I'm drawn to these guys at this time because I think that there are great journalists in this country and great journalists all around the world England um, uh, also in 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 America like journalism for the longest time has been under fire and there are still great programs and great outlets that do great stuff um, and I think that there are still, Like that, speaking that accountability factor um, is still so deeply important to me, and so I I feel like when I look at some of the stuff that happens in this country, and I don't necessarily always talk about my politics and everything that I'm doing, but I, but I, I, I feel like this was an opportunity to start to tangle with some of that. Was like to talk about what, what is actually, what are the things that journalists still can do in in the most positive light that they continue to do, even though as you said, Nixon squared um, continues to slander as you know, in, in in like almost using by the same playbook, slandering the journalists to say that they're not telling the truth or that they haven't got their facts straight or they haven't got the right sources. And it's like, well, there is a tipping point that happens. And so I think that whole entanglement means that I, and it it becomes this universal approach of truth to power. I I feel is I see the universality in this story.
1: Yeah. well, Jesus! I had no idea that <laughs> we're, what the effing fuck I didn't know. It was, that I, and we have so many problems here with you know, not even watching the news anymore. <laughs> but uh, it's the paradox. The 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 modern condition is this paradox of more information than ever, canceled out by misinformation and so the the ownership you know so, so much um, the, the risk of actually getting sued or you know stepping over some kind of line and being having to serve time or something like that it um, yeah it's it's and and I think that that's where
0: you know we see it a lot play out now in George Pell, who is Archbishop George Pell, who was convicted, uh, w- was actually convicted um, as a, a child rapist uh, by a jury, yeah. and then went to the Australian Supreme Court, who then squashed the case, and he's released.
1: Jesus Christ!
0: And and there's other examples where Jeffrey Rush, a famous actor, uh, yeah. has. Uh, a multi-pronged sort of me too-esque story about some pretty deplorable behavior um, or alleged deplorable behavior, go out there with witnesses and people coming to the stand and things like that. And not only did that was he, despite the overwhelming evidence seemingly from the outside or what was reported in multiple publications around the country, not only was he exonerated, but then Australian libel laws, thanks to people like Rupert Murdoch, um, Uh, Made it so that he could then go and sue the publications who helped these whistleblowers come out. So uh, there's some really interesting stuff that's happening in the in my country. Um, And and look, I think you know, for all of my uh, deep, you know, for for all of my political, uh, you know, uh, inclinations aside, personally being a bit more of a what you call like a a Democrat in the States, in Australia we call a Labor, you know, like progressive kind of person, you know, I think at the moment I I have actually admired the work that our government has done in response to this international crisis. Um, and they're completely opposed to me sort of when it comes to their their values. Um, but I, I definitely, the, the universal human values of life and safety and, you know, medical care and all that sort of stuff, we are aligned and they're doing a really great job. But I still think there's a lot of other stuff that, that especially at the beginning of this podcast like everything happening in the world was like really like these blips um that that were making me look back at this movie as a salve that still are simmering underneath the surface of this crisis and i think that you know if i if i hope if i have one enduring hope for the the text that is this examination is that like when people are listening along to it that it you know that um there is progress from some of the systemic stuff that we're talking about here, because that's the other scary thing: is that when you say Nixon squared, it means that there's been no progress for forty plus years, and that's scary.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm actually not sure about progress. I look at our our commander in chief, and uh, no, this is uh, this is the worst kind of reality TV show. <laughs> this is of a Boom Viacom freak show on wheels, but. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, you've you've been posting a lot about Munich, have you been posting about Munich lately? I have. Spielberg's Munich, is this, so, is this because I'm thinking about interconnectivity in this mad, 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 mad world, that's another film with, very, to me, very interesting transitions, you know, which, though it was released in 2005, I think, and set in, what, 1972. Mm. Seventy, it it you know the the title munich kind of denotes a specific geographical place and yet these characters that that one incendiary incident just leaves those characters okay you're in this part of the world now now you're in this city and then this city and then this city Uh, it's as if spielberg was making a, a film that was totally in step with the information age in which it was released and where we of course find ourselves more and more as we get more cybernetic. So I I, was, was, is Munich right now kind of also feeding into uh, your present day concerns? Uh, Yeah.
0: I think Munich is just a, it's it's not, not about feeding into my present day concerns, but I think Munich is just a very incredibly put together examination of like like an unanswerable quandary, and Spielberg is doing it yeah. from a like a socio political belief standpoint, as well as like the entangled weird geopolitical mess of, or like, or trying to trying to qualify the geopolitical mess of, you know, Israel and Palestine and Jews and Arabs and that entire, you know, in, insane and in. in Insanely complex, and I'm never going to be able to articulate it clearly. I would need a whole podcast to just even do it with vastly more people, you know, ex- uh, experienced and experts than myself. But what I love about it is that it it tackles the ambivalence and ambiguity of that purpose and the lack of clarity after all of that so deftly and so poetically, and it's it 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 gets you to the humanity and the kinship and like almost like a war movie of like being another soldier on the front lines fighting something that's important and then also does these great, has these wonderful interludes about, you know, business, like illegal business in this case, sort of uh, parasitically going on the top of these causes and sort of playing both sides and just making money off of everyone's death. Um, And so that's like this proto-corporate business mercenary sort of element. And then you've got when you actually talk about the philosophical discussions between, you know, an an, an Israel or a Palestinian or an, or, or an Arabic person or, or a Jew, it he he doesn't look he doesn't look down on it. It's very matter of fact that each argument is equally equally should be heard. You know, each 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 point of view is valid, um, even though he's obviously making a a film about Jewish protagonists um, ultimately. Um, uh, And, and then how that just that seemingly cyclical lack of progress and echo can just echo through to contemporary politics in the contemporary world. I just think it's, I just think it's, I think it's actually in, it's in my top three of his films. I'd go like Raiders jaws, switch those two around anytime.
1: Um, It's an an invaluable problem and I mean and it evokes uh, certainly I think in its style the 1970s pecula type movies that you know we're talking about now but yes um, I, I think that you know I have a, a, a idea about Spielberg that people that, like there's kind of this hacky idea that, uh, that you compare Spielberg and Kubrick and Kubrick has one idea about humanity and Spielberg has another. I th- I love Kubrick, of course, but uh, I think Spielberg's disposition towards human beings is actually one of the most pessimistic among artists. Yeah. He, has, he, he is able to represent hope because that's what you have, but it's like these little tiny victories in between uh, constant battlefields and broken families and, and you know, in Spielberg we're born and then we fall in love and create a family and then we fuck it up and then <laughs> mate. And there's a mo there's a little moment of reconciliation somewhere down the road, but human being, and Munich came out in 2005. And I think that with that, that run that he was on, you know, beginning with, you could say private Ryan, but you know, I say, you know, like, AI, Catch Me If You Can, Minority Report, yeah. and uh, War of the Worlds. Uh, I like the terminal, but it's kind of a minor work. And and then ending with Munich, I, I think that that run is really a stellar just uh, stride for a, a, a filmmaker. And when people knock Spielberg, I'm like, you couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, there's no one not- who could do it. That, that, that's the thing. It's like it's, when people knock Spielberg, I'm like, why are we even talking about this? It's almost like people who said the earth is flat. I'm like, stop. It's done. Your argument was valid when he was a guy who was about to transition into something serious after being a populist filmmaker for most of his career. Um, And, you know, and and your arguments are all flawed anyway because a lot of people are like, oh, he made a monster movie with Jaws. Jaws is one of the most bleak new Hollywood movies about a mayor who would rather see his entire town eaten by a water monster with a million teeth than close a beach. Something that I think deeply resonates with maybe the world of (laughs) COVID-19. And at the end of it, he turns it into a monster movie. But it's one of the bleakest new Hollywood movies of all time, which I think is encapsulates the sentiment of the time so beautifully, which is why then when it turns into an adventure monster movie, it has you hook, line, and sinker, forgive the puns. Um, but it's, you know, having the argument about whether Spielberg is good or not or, or is a hack or not, people I just, just stop. Like, he's been working for X amount of years. He's, he, you know, in his resume, if you put together the, like, the Spielberg top 10, there's almost not a better film like pound for pound filmmaker who's had 10 films like of equal to in cultural impact, in influence, in artistry, in technical prowess, in like extracting incredible performances out of actors who later to go on and do not much. And you see that he is like a a seminal person for them. So yeah, like I, I just love Munich, but I like Munich's approach to ambiguity and ambivalence and, and that impact. I think it's just got this, and it's just this poetic restraint. Like this, he's he's making obvious statements in Munich, but the way that he's like, sorry, he's making statements in Munich, but the way he's making them is just like, it is like a, it's him at his most virtuosic, I think. In in that, you know, because they talk about his later films, you know, the Post of the World, the Bridge of Spies, uh, Lincoln, um, all very very accomplished films. Um, But for me, the Munich is just, it's it's that it's that perfect solo that he just does it, and it's just singing the whole time.
1: And if we're gonna be little movie sociologists like we are <laughs> you know, I, I obviously really uh, and, and all of Spielberg's movies from that time, you know, getting back to all the presidents then it was just going back. We're going back I'm cool. drinking <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, look, I cannot begrudge anyone um, drinking during a podcast for anyone who's seen Miami Nights,
1: <laughs> But but,
0: um, and you know what? I'm glad you're sharing it with me. Actually, hold on. What I'm going to do, you're going to vamp, you're going to start taking a point. I'm going to go fill up a drink so that I can join you.
1: Okay. Well, right then. <laughs> now, As I was saying, <laughs> to be a, a little movie sociologist, Munich was like War of the Worlds that same year and like Spielberg's other films at that time were reflecting the kind of ambiguity of among people at that time, because after 9-11, we had a very clear cut idea or thought we did about good and evil. Yes. And after the Iraq war, uh, and we were sunk into what by 2004 was more transparently a quagmire, there was a lot of questions like, what the hell are we doing? And the 9-11 commission and so on. And I think actually, I, I've talked about this before, but Scorsese's The Departed, which came out a year later, uh, is a lot, light and explores those same themes. of Yeah,
0: and, and on, a, on an like, absolute purely domestic, like, yeah, he, he's taking a town and domesticity and race and talking all about it locally. And the quagmire, just the quagmire of where money's being made and who's being made, you know, ha- and little industries in and of themselves being entang- more entangled than we'd like them. Yeah, he's, he's playing that same game as well. But, yeah, for the historical context, it's really important.
1: 70s icons, I think, understood the, the 21st century uh, as good as <laughs> whatever underkins were uh, just emerging at that point in time. Yes. And... I'm I'm grateful for, Maestro Spielberg and Scorsese and so forth, and, and I, I think that both those you know The Departed and Munich in their own, their own perspective and, 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 li-
0: and you know what and a little and and a little, was- and, and a, little uh, a little cab ride also made in two thousand and one you know talks about you know. D- Talks about the futility of life and does it even matter? And that's from another of Maestro Michael Mann. You know, like, you know, I e Ching. Who cares? Right? You know, it's like the world is big and people are gonna make money. And what do you care? You're just going about your life and just, you know, you know, counting down the seconds until you die. You know, I think there's some really wonderful, some of those maestros all coming out and making some really interesting films all in that corridor, 2004 to 2007, sort of there's like this great, even 2008 and it all sort of materializes in 2008 with this whole next wave of like incredible, incredible films from the Coens and Paul Thomas Anderson and all that sort of stuff. But in that corridor, it was, you know, deeply uh, sociopolitical essays, if you like, in a lot of those films.
1: I think it really climaxed with Public Enemies, as documented in a book called Off the Map. <laughs> 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 yeah, but I mean, but obviously, with 2010 and uh, the Social Network, which is all about the technology that connects us, you know, brings us together, and um. You think that people listening to this are drinking too? <laughs> Oops, Maybe
0: not to this episode because in this show we haven't sort of said it as a, pre- a principle, but I hope so. I hope that if, uh, if, if by the time they've gotten to this point, they've decided to be influenced by, uh, yourself and myself having a drink. I think that's great. Look, my friend, I think it's always a pleasure talking to you and I love, um, I love occasionally the cross-examination that happens when we have a dialogue because, um, you know, you and I knowing each other well, uh, that helps. Um, But I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of this show. Um, And I know that with Miami Nice coming up and uh, most definitely another film that's really got a great kinship to this um, in Zodiac in Zodiac Chronicle coming up from July, um, I'm sure other people who love listening to you will love listening to you on some of those shows a little bit later because undoubtedly... I'll be uh, I'll be knocking on your door virtually to say come back and have another chat.
1: Well, I'm a fiend for mojitos, man. <laughs> Super loaded for Miami, nice. Uh, but thanks for having me on, and I hope everyone out there stays safe and um, you know uh, read my stuff. And if you don't like my stuff, then you know it's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you will I love I love a few A few drinks and he's like if you don't like it that's fine that's like that's the nicest thing you could possibly say to anyone if you don't like it that's fine you will like be nice it out there, okay? if, if you listen to this show you will definitely like it Niles is uh, a deeply poetic writer um, and has uh, a kind of maestro level himself understanding and, and of of digital entanglement, particularly in his book or his monograph um, uh, off the map so check that out but um, I will also link in uh, in the show notes if you go to oneheatminute.com forward slash all the president's minutes podcast uh, you'll see the article that is there um, uh, that accompanies this podcast and you'll also see links to Niles' stuff and to his video essays and all that other stuff but look, you're the best and thanks again
1: Well thank you, I hope you stay healthy and uh, fight the good fight
0: That was my incredibly insightful friend, Mr. Niles Schwartz. If you want to follow Niles and find all of his stuff, all you need to do is go to Twitter, at Niles Files is the best place to find him, and you can find a link off to his great book, Off the Map. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes. Um, You'll just need to know that now, every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, uh, for the next Coming months, you're going to have brand spanking new episodes of All the President's Minutes in your calendar, in your schedule of listening. We have a stack of other things happening on One Heat Minute Productions as well. Every Friday, Australian time, a brand new show. Our seventh season on One Heat Minute Productions is Miami Nice, co-hosted by Katie Walsh, where we go through Michael Mann's misunderstood masterpiece, Miami Vice. One topic, one morsel at a time, we go All over it, it is both a listen along and a watch-along podcast um, where we will occasionally drink along while we're talking about it. Um, So we'd love you to check that out. And also on Saturday's Australian time but Friday's US time we still have our amazing increment Vice dropping every single week with host Travis Woods and an array of amazing and talented guests. So check that out. Get it in your ears. If you want to support the show Patreon forward slash Blake Howard that's where all of our One Heat Minute production support can be. But right now in this crazy Crazy time of COVID. we just love if you could share and recommend the show to anyone who you think would dig it. We have a whole stack of back catalogue things. Nothing is behind a paywall. We have the whole One Heat Minute series. We have Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans. We have contingent episodes, about 20 episodes going through and checking in on folks. Some of those will pop back up in the near future. And also Josie and the Podcasts, a 12-episode limited series going through the 2001 satire the music industry josie and the pussycats um, an episode at the time covering all the way from the inception of the characters through to the legacy of the 2001 film a stack of great episodes hosted by maria lewis um, and produced by myself so check that one out as well but this has been another episode of one eight minute productions thank
1: you so much for listening again and if you're still listening what the hell are you doing go listen to the next episode